Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Glenn Banton to the show. Glenn is a strategic growth executive with a passion for building products, communities, and brands across numerous industries. He is known as an innovative executive leader, highly regarded for streamlining the organizational processes and increasing revenue by providing expert business and product transformation insights for top-level industry leaders such as Disney, Bose, Nike, Bank of America, and a list of others. Currently, Glenn is the COO of a company called Havoc, which provides fully portable, self-contained virtual reality training solutions for military training. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Hey, thanks you all for having me. Glenn, if you don't mind, dig a little bit deeper for us and tell us more about what's going on over at Havoc and, and what you're doing to play your part there. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I, I joined the Havoc team, I guess, the latter part of the summer of this year. I'd known some of the team over there. And I think a lot of what's most interesting for me and why I joined has a lot to do with the founder and even his vision. So, you know, as you mentioned, we build a virtual reality training product, or better yet, I hate to say it, the, the entrepreneur world, a platform that allows us to have this virtual world where training can happen to help our warfighters to be more effective and more efficient. First product was a joint fires trainer, which is for JTACs or TACPs is um Anyone with military background or kind of knowledge would understand, but essentially those are almost the, the command and control guys on the battlefield that help rack and stack planes up in the sky, make sure artillery that's being fired from a long ways away is hitting the right targets and staying away from the good guys. But really what was most interesting to me was the founder himself is a former Navy SEAL uh, for about 10 years. Prior to that, he actually went to school and got a degree in game development. And so when you really look at the product we're building, Yes, it's a training and simulation software for military defense innovation, but it looks like it fits more appropriately inside the gaming world. So that's where when you look at a lot of like the last you know, 10, 15, 20 years of my professional career, I love that I'm finally able to take the best parts of the DoD innovation and the best parts of kind of the gaming industry and put them together in something that has an appreciative customer with some you know, badass product, uh, super high fidelity graphics that uh, we can deliver. That's awesome. I, I We've done some work with the DOD and, and it definitely seems like there's a huge interest in this type of training, education. And it, I think we all know why, but if you could, what are some of the, like the big pluses, right? Where, where are you guys seeing like big wins? Absolutely. Well, I, I'd say it, 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 the big win is just generally technology as, as a tool, which I know is a theme, obviously, with a lot of guests on, on the podcast. And, you know, you look at something like virtual reality, and if I even think of the context that was brought up in for DOD 10 plus years ago, it was almost always for maintenance or it'd be some, you know, walkthrough type of, of, of scenario, which then kind of grew into a, an XR or an AR, so extended reality, augmented reality, where, you know, you're seeing through this lens in order to understand what you're looking at. But in our particular case, and a lot of the direction we've seen recently, it's utilizing AR in its ability to 
recreate environments where you can have more looks, so to speak. So in our case, you know, you look at the joint fires trainer for JTAC, the alternative or what they've been doing for years is a couple different things. Number one, they're actually out in the field, actually directing airplanes to go drop bombs in certain places. That's expensive. You know, use your imagination as to why. Or they use these large dome trainers, which almost looks like, I can't even describe it if you haven't seen them, but imagine you're standing in like a 15 by 15 room and half the room is a some sort of projection screen that's about you know 10 to 15 feet tall, about 270 degrees of visual space. And they're inside of that. Now, the challenge with that is graphical fidelity. The other challenge with that is it's in one place. It can't go anywhere. And so really what you're seeing just from the military as a whole is how can we accelerate training? How can we get more looks? Another big push is how can we lessen the amount of injuries that are happening? Um, we're seeing, I will say that was not really a, a directive or a drive for building havoc, but we're seeing that as a response from legislative interests, from higher ups in the military, where they're saying, well, wait a second, if we're able to take some of these other training elements and put them into virtual reality, not for all of it, we still have to do real world training, but maybe that decreases the number of head injuries and um, TBIs and that sort of thing, which the majority of military injuries actually happen during training. So that's really what we're seeing. And then the other part I'd say kind of extends off of that is, again, how do we look at things less from a bleeding edge and more of a leading edge? Meaning, again, if I look kind of historically back, a lot of the RFPs that I would answer be a part of um, that would come out of places like DARPA, which is you know who does all the crazy stuff. They were almost too far out. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. The problem is, is we need to figure out how to get our warfighters up to speed more quickly. And yes, we need to think where's war going to be five, 10 years down the road, national security. But what can we do today with the technology that we have to make them better? And so a lot of that is this interaction of hardware and software and sensors and these different pieces with the goal to get actionable data from training out there and implemented into the field as quickly as possible. And that's where this has gotten a lot more exciting as opposed to, again, a decade plus ago, everything was vaporware, just vertical slices. It wasn't something we could actually wrap our hands around. And now it's exciting to see it all come to fruition. I'm curious, and you mentioned, obviously, there's some cost associated with actual three-dimensional weapons mm -hmm. right and like exploding bombs that could that could cause a price increase i've used the digital simulator firing range at a, a couple of right awesome and i'm i'm proud to tell you my score stinks <laughs> uh, and what was why i'm saying that though is because of uh the nature of accuracy of understanding what i was doing they were able to give me significant mm -hmm. advice on how to improve my score like right there and so I'm curious in, in this more immersive model, right, where you're even more so, yeah. are, are some of the benefits an acceleration of learning? So it's not even just like a cost, but a time reduction of like you're able to get feedback and replace scenarios faster without having to like recreate the, the three-dimensional stuff? Yeah, ab absolutely. There's, there's a few examples I always share in that world. One potential product that we're looking to develop here relatively soon would be like a virtual shoot house. So kind of take the virtual shooting scenario that you've brought up. 
but let's for a second compare it to the live fire exercise. So typically a shoot house, it's, you know, in the size of a warehouse, it's got walls, you know, 10, 14 feet high, but there's typically catwalks over the top of it. And you've got the trainers and the observers watching these rooms be cleared and they are objectively observing, but in reality, it's subjective because we're all, we all have bias. And so they can still obviously, you know, replay and some of that gets filmed and they can make people better. But if we take that over and start implementing, you know, sensors and eye tracking and noticing like how many degrees somebody's head turns or exactly where their weapon is pointed in relation to the exact 3D space, we can conclude things like, you know, the third guy in the door doesn't sweep the left long enough for what he's supposed to do as the third guy in the room and actually do something about it. Or, you know, when you use a JTAC scenario in the most simplistic sense, again, their job is this observing this massive amount of space. They're on multiple radios talking to all sorts of different people, and they're having to balance paying attention to various parts of the battle space off at the same time. Well, again, in the virtual world, when we do that training, we actually via the sensors we have in the headsets and some of the potential eye tracking we have down the road, we're able to actually go, oh, you've been looking down 10% longer than you need to. And here's proof. Here's where, here's why. When you get in this situation, you're looking too much in this particular area. It's not to say that that could not be caught by a trainer that's sitting next to them in the field. The reality then is, again, we have bias. We're all looking for certain things to improve. And when we use technology as a tool, we can help still have a man in the machine. I'm big on that. There needs to always be human oversight, but being able to just objectively say, hey, from a stats perspective, you look to the left 70% of the time, which means you're ignoring what's happening on the right more than you should. And those are, again, a lot of things that we're trying to figure out how to implement still, again, as you said, with the emphasis on training people up more quickly and to be more effective and to be more efficient. And then again, I'll say it over and over with this product, it's to get more looks more quickly. So even if we can't get out in the field, this is something with anything we're building, you could conceivably be sitting in your hotel room waiting for that live field fire training and actually still be going through these same cycles because a lot of it becomes kind of muscle memory and a process that has to be followed. It's super interesting, especially that whole concept of muscle memory and accelerating that of like, uh, just there's some things that you, I think about any training, it's long-term, it's small iterative adoption of similar concepts and just the, the whole having to be repeated, right? Like the idea that you're going to go for training for like a week and then mm-hmm. go do something new. I think we all know is just not a great strategy in any way, shape or form, right? Exactly. So the application of these actual physical doing things, how far do you think this can reach? Where do you think this technology can go to? I'm actually a lot more bullish on XR now than I used to be. So you know, when I look at from just kind of a consumer perspective, the, the metaverse and meta and all that stuff is really what a lot of, I think, the opinion gets encapsulated in. And, you know, not too many years ago, you had the movie Ready Player One that came out, which I, I think was an interesting, obviously it was based on a book. I think it was an interesting take and certainly very much the utopian view of what a certain part of the population might like. Very focused on gaming, but still there's some interaction. And I, I still don't believe certainly in our lifetime, or even the one next, that that's actually something that humanity even wants. I think it's, again, it's one of those things where this 
sub five to 10% of the population would be interested in living in that sort of situation full time. And that's going to be driven by the top 1% financially of the world. And this isn't anything more than that's how business is. That's how technology has grown. Where I've gotten more excited and, and interestingly enough, it's a lot has changed from when you know we first met and first started talking with the new Meta VR headset that came out is it's actually targeted at businesses. It's a, it's a pro version. The price point is significantly higher than the consumer version. And again, to some people, they see it as a negative. To me, I see it as finally taking serious the better use cases. Again, that, that theme of utilizing technology as a tool and aiming it at your, your enterprise customer, your enterprise user, and utilizing it for things. You know, in our case, we're using it for military training, but really getting serious are there, you know, medical applications. I don't really buy into the whole let's put our headsets on and go sit down in a virtual meeting. I believe that, you know, how we're talking here or how we have meetings over Zoom or Google meet still make the most sense. And maybe again, maybe I'm just too old to understand, but I really believe that the biggest future for VR and XR is going to be, it needs to be rooted in enterprise for it to really be adopted in the consumer space. Because the price point for consumer or it being almost exclusively focused on gaming, there was a little bit of push early on to watch movies in headsets. And you can do that. But even that, what's funny is most of the virtual reality movie watching apps, you're sitting in a virtual living room. Like that's just so odd to me. Why would you not just watch it on your television? So it's, I think it's just figuring out, again, it's this cool piece of technology. I think this has happened constantly over decades. Something cool comes out. It has some kind of fad looks at it. Heck, Bitcoin is the, not to say that there's not obviously value there, but it's the fad shiny value for you know the underlying blockchain technology. Blockchain technology is, is the future, not Bitcoin, in my opinion. I hear you. And I, I do think when you mentioned, yeah, there's new technology, we're going to apply the old models to it. I mean, that's the internet, right? When it first started and it's like, oh, we're going to do what we did. But, and I have, I've used my uh, VR to watch movies on Netflix, which you are actually sitting in a virtual living room, yeah, which makes zero sense. Yeah. But luckily it'll make you more uncomfortable than just sitting there on your sofa, right? So you've got this thing hanging off your face that, yeah. you know, makes you not blink. And then, uh, you know, so you get uh, your eyes dry out and it's uncomfortable, right? Which is great. Wait, that's a huge upgrade. <laughs> so, Shelly, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I don't have any experience in this space. So it's just interesting to learn both of you talk about it. I think it would be interesting. I think your points are, are spot on, Glenn. Not that anybody cares what my opinions are, but, you know, uh, with the new devices coming out of Meta and the cost and the price point and, uh, it'll be interesting because I, I do struggle and maybe I'm just too old as well. The idea that like collaboration on these devices from a three-dimensional standpoint of I'm going to be moving something around, mm -hmm. right? Unless they do something significant where like the actual hand recognition is is better than it currently is. It's interesting you mentioned that because I'd say I'm probably with you. My expectation is not necessarily, you know, Tony Stark in Avengers or, you know, Minority Port and moving that around. But at the same time, there's been a few times where I've tested kind of some prototype software inside of VR. And I'll admit, 
I would rather have the concept of multiple kind of floating screens in that environment than I would multiple screens on my desk in front of me. And, and again, why? Multiple screens on my desk in front of me takes space. I can get the same, at least for my mind, I can get the same experience inside of VR. I'll admit for me, my challenge, I couldn't work in that for you know, two, three, four hours, it, it would, it would drive me absolutely nuts, but being able to like, you know, like you mentioned the collaboration of doing the same thing. Again, if you look at what we're doing with joint fires, we actually have multiplayer that's going to be launching soon. And yeah, we're using the gaming term, but in reality, what you're seeing is multiple people in that virtual universe performing different actions that are all seen together. And again, if I'm looking at from a collaboration standpoint, that's where you take that next step from say a Zoom meeting or a Google meet. And yeah, right now with the virtual whiteboard is literally just a notepad that people draw on. And yes, there's smart boards and these different things, but I would say that would be the one place where for short periods of time, potentially having everybody in this virtual 3D space for the sake of less looking at each other and more the what are we working on together i i do believe there's a value there because you can iterate on each other's work in the same way there's one really well received coding practice so you know computer coding where you're doing dual programming so it's two developers working on the same thing at the same time and they can do that through a simple screen share but it's like how do you take that same general concept and apply it to other use cases where maybe Maybe we're inspecting a piece of hardware or how a circuit board's laid out and being able to literally be in that space together. And maybe, you know, somebody's over in New Delhi and somebody else is in Miami and somebody else is in Paris, and they can literally see the render of that happening at the same time. And again, that's not even an interesting use case in and of itself. It's very simplistic, but it has implications to make people more efficient, more effective with their actual work. So Glenn, I do have a quick question. I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I keep thinking about Malcolm Gladwell and how he says it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert mm -hmm. in anything. Do you feel like with this training that accelerates that or is it just different? I, I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. I think I have all his books on the shelf behind me and I've actually read them all. But I do think this still factors into the 10,000 hours. When you look at a lot of where his 10,000 hours come along. Yeah, it's more from the play violin or piano or, or shoot a basketball or even coding. It seems a lot more hands-on, if you will. But I do believe it comes back to, we talked about kind of almost the learning loops and even doing these reps inside of the virtual space contributes to that. And that's where a lot of, again, from a Havoc perspective, and I think the companies that are really taking this seriously Visual fidelity is where it's at. It does not matter how great a training system you have from an algorithmic or a coding perspective, if it looks garbage, it just, it doesn't matter. And so a lot of our goal, and there's only so far you can go because in that three dimensional space, if I get up on something very close from that virtual distance, it starts to break down. That's just, that's just what happens from a pixelation standpoint. But our goal is when we're providing training, if somebody's, they're doing training on, off of a certain mountain, calling in, you know, airstrikes on a certain piece of terrain, and they're doing it in our virtual reality system, and then later on down the road in their training, they're actually at that same place. Our goal is hopefully they say, oh my gosh, I've, it's the deja vu. I've, I've seen this before. I've been here before. It feels familiar. And a lot of just kind of training and learning itself comes from that sense of understanding is, 
I feel like I've been here before because a lot of that 10,000 hours is the confidence that also grows over time as well. And that's what we're trying to do by bridging those gaps. And I think other companies that are trying to venture into this space as well are trying to do the same thing. I think that's a great point. The uh, whole concept of the 10,000 hours. It would be interesting to see if that kind of like impact that would have longer term, right? I know it's more of a semantic discussion when it comes to the 10,000 hours concept, but Glenn, tell us how you got started on this journey. Yeah, it's a good question. My joking phrase, when I kind of look back, as I say, somehow I have weaponized ADD and that was not a bad thing. You know, from a education standpoint, you know, going way, way back, I was the kid that figured out how to dual credit in high school before that was really a thing. And it wasn't because I was academically smart. It's because I realized I didn't have to be either place. High school always thought I was at college. College didn't care where you were. And I figured out how to get good enough grades. I also had a, at least during the summer, uh, full-time job. And then during the, the regular year, at an actual large software company doing software development and testing because they paid me. Like it was about the money and doing something that was a little bit different than delivering food or, or working at McDonald's. You know, college education, went to University of Connecticut, major focus was actually business law, which was just under the school business. So it's not a not something where I became an attorney or, or or that perspective. That just happened to be the biggest focus. And then oddly enough, became the director of what was then soon the largest basketball academy in the country, if not probably the world, where I trained kids two of which were NBA draft picks and helped grow that from like a little Northern Nevada based organization that was running, you know, AAU basketball tournaments out of a couple of middle school gyms to where we had tournaments in seven States and deals with Disney and Alameda Naval base. And that's where I started. And I give that wandering kind of intro because that's where I started to realize I'm just good at solving problems through kind of the paradigm of everything's about people. It's, it still comes down to people and there's all sorts of ways to become more effective and more efficient. And it's just figuring out what that looks like. Now, along the way, the major roadblock is also people. So in my entrepreneurial journey, and this is why some other entrepreneurs, this is probably the only place where I really get any flack is I've never started anything, but why should I have to? Everybody else is busy breaking their own stuff. So I can happily step in, step into those places and, and help. And and that's really been, I'd say, where I've thrived and shined is finding individuals that are self-aware and situationally aware and passionate, but not that bleeding heart passion, if you will, that want to grow something, but understand that their vision is actually limited by their own understanding of it. And in order to truly grow, they're going to have to figure out which parts they're going to let go. And so you just kind of fast forward and you start stacking experience on experience on experience. And I've worked in the, while I was in the translation industry for a number of years, I don't speak anything other than above average English, but I could grow companies to help with acquisitions and due diligence for some acquisitions at that company. And then things started getting crazy when I was hired, I think it was employee number, probably six at a company called Chaotic Moon Studios. And that's where stuff got really crazy. They ended up later on being bought by Accenture but we essentially built the first version of the mobile apps for everybody from Starbucks to Fox to the precursor to the Disney Plus app that you see, which was Movies Anywhere. And before that was Disney Movies Anywhere. It sits on a lot of the same infrastructure. We built that. And that was one of my customers as well. 
first app that had Apple, Google, and Amazon all having to play nice with each other in a single ecosystem, which that in of itself was unheard of. And then that's also where I started to get a lot more into the DoD stuff. The consumer product stuff was interesting, but I'll admit over time, it becomes less appealing every day to go figure out how we can get people addicted to their devices. <laughs> it's just not something I wanted to do. But same as we're talking about VR today, there was mobile computing generally, not just, don't just think mobile phones, but mobile computing and what that means from things like mesh networks becoming more real and having sensors more on board your body. You started to see all these different implications in the military space. And I just absolutely loved it. Got connected with people like Northrop Grumman and the Naval Warfare and Research Center and things they're working on. And again, just one thing after another, I end up here somehow. So <laughs> it's been a fun journey, but really it's about finding interesting projects with cool people. I mean, I'll kind of simplify it to that point at my age, at my age now that really are focused on how do we, through our product or service, actually provide some positive impact and enjoy working together every single day on solving complex problems. And that's where I would say with any consulting work I've done over the years, and especially over the past decade or so, that's the box that's to be checked is are, are the people you know, self-aware and situationally aware, and are we building something that actually exists? And again, within Havoc, and I kind of said that leading, leading in there, is what we have today actually exists, is actually being used, is actually being purchased, as opposed to you know, other startups I've been a part of and consulted for, definitely had vision, definitely had passion, but just could never get it to be something or, or in some cases that was never really the goal. It was to do just enough to go sell it and start the next thing. And I want to be excited and wake up in the morning and, and help people kick ass at their job and do some positive things along the way. Awesome. It's always interesting to hear the story of how it began, where it got to, but it's always, uh, there's passion behind the friction, right? There's always a reason why people keep choosing to do these uncomfortable things, right? Yeah. A lot of times I think you wake up and you're like, why do I keep doing this to myself? Oh, absolutely. Well, and it's, it's even stuff, I throw it in there too, because you kind of look back and I think it was, I don't know how many years ago, it's like I realized the average person only stays, especially in tech, only stays in their job for like less than 18 months. That's a successful person. And I was like, oh, okay. So, job hopping really isn't a thing. It's and less about getting distracted or not being able to focus and more about, you know, either move up or move on. And you know, I still would say one of the most impactful things early on was actually from my dad, just from, from really young age, don't have debt, don't have debt, don't have debt. And a lot of that had to do with not being chained to a job for that reason. Give yourself the ability to leave. You don't like your circumstances, leave. And I've seen a lot of amazing people essentially handcuffed. They handcuff themselves to it. They handcuffed the situation because they can't afford to take the leap out there. And that has less to do with, in some cases, it's taking the leap to start your own thing. And it's hard to do that if you've got this you know, huge amount of debt or deficit going on. But even just on, if you're a contributor, moving from that job you don't like at place A to a better opportunity at place B, it's hard to make that balance when you've got you know this, this massive stack of debt. And so I remember that is just constantly always played through my head. And yeah, I've even had, especially when I was younger, 
these managers that, well, what motivates you? I'm like, well, money does. But at the same time, like my goal is to make sure I have no debt. So if we don't see eye to eye, I can leave. And some of them would see it the wrong way. You're not loyal. I'm like, no, it's because that shouldn't be what this is about. And I remember there was one manager that you know, he he told me at one point, like, and he was like a sales executive, managed sales team. His goal was always to try to convince, especially salespeople, buy another boat, take another vacation, lease another car, because he knew the more he could get you to buy stuff, the more you'd have to sell for him. That's right. And it's fine. If you can afford to get 10 cars, go do it. You can take vacations, go do your thing. But I've seen a lot more people look at it from the other way around, which is like, how do I build this kind of, again, a lifestyle that I can sustain and then build wealth and intelligently use it. So you're not chasing stuff for the first, especially if, you know, if you're a younger person listening to this, if you're not chasing stuff for your twenties into your thirties and then going, shoot, now I can't get out of this hole. And instead it's like, how can I put in the work, earn some money, live within my means. So by the time you get to that sweet spot, which continues to be shown by studies that's somewhere between like 37 and 50, you don't have this albatross hanging around your neck. You can roll, you can take risks at the time where you're the most valuable from a professional perspective. I'm smiling because I had a mentor years and years ago who said, Shelly, everybody needs to go to hell fund. And that's exactly what it was. Like everybody needs the freedom to have financial stability so that they can make those decisions and really do what they're passionate about. So I couldn't agree more. It's a good mentor right there. Yeah, it was somebody explained the the sales mentality of like, yeah, buy a new house, buy this. It's all it's all handcuffing yourself to this job, right? Yeah. Where it's like you 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 are losing autonomy by your purchase. I, there's a famous quote. I forget exactly which one of the Stoics had it, but it was along the lines of uh, being wealthy isn't defined by how much you have, but by how little you need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. And I think that's uh, that's the. The real truth of like, what do you really need? So yeah, exactly. But uh, I do think autonomy and freedom is what drives most people when it comes to doing their own things or being part of this type of culture is that uh, you're creating something that whether you're going to get direct value out of, uh, more important, you get indirect value out of experience, authority, knowledge, uh, persistence, right? Knowing that you can do it. Mm is value unto itself, knowing that you can step into the void and and uh, make something out of it is, is really the the real value of, of for innovative people is that, that that I call it for raising my kids stacking victories, right? Yeah. Where it's like you're gonna have mistakes, you're gonna fail, but you're gonna get back up, you're gonna keep moving and then you end up gaining confidence of like, oh, that's not gonna kill me. We might as well try, right? Exactly. It's, no, I, I'd say a, a lot of that is probably why I've continued to go pick at this scab, if you will, of, of whatever, whatever this 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 weird combination of what I do is. It I think that's a great way to put it. Stacking victories is you know after doing this for you know what 20, 20 plus years, you start to go. I've I did I saw this before and it worked. And then similarly, it's like when you start seeing it, and then you also have just a basic understanding of psychology and sociology a lot of stuff is actually, it is the way it is. Not that you can't and shouldn't use your gut. I use mine plenty, but like at scale, humans act in a certain manner. And so there'll be a lot of times where I'll go in, this happens all the time. I'll talk with a founder about some offshoot of an idea they have, or this, this thing they need to do. And they're, they're, they're certain that it's going to be accepted in this other way. 
but we're not talking in this like groundbreaking, you know, next gen have never been seen. It's literally an iteration of other stuff in the market. And I said, no, you're, you're, you're wrong. And it's not that your gut, it's that for how people react to what you're trying to present at scale, again, at scale is the only way you can look at a marketplace, not an individual one-to-one it won't be received because people don't interact with it that way. And I'd say a lot of it, again, when I when I talk, you know, kind of bring a full circle back to some of the metaverse stuff, that's where a lot of my opinion that's, I wouldn't say it's not positive. It's more, I'm just not positive against a lot of the kind of glossed over cultural look currently in metaverse and that concept is I don't believe from a human sociology and psychological perspective that it's going to be interesting. It's just not. It's not to say it's not interesting to certain people, but again, at scale, it's not going to happen. And again, that just comes back to what we know about psychology and sociology over, you know, a few thousand years. So that kind of information is great. And I think it's why you look at, okay, you know, you're trying to figure out how to get into your next job or start your next company or, or start your first one and just reading and absorbing information and other people's knowledge and experiences is so gosh darn important. You know, what what you can learn from reading three or four of Malcolm Gladwell's books, not just from the content he's presenting, but how he presents it is is just amazing. I mean, what you can learn from him with how you speak. I mean, heck, he wrote a book called the, what was it? The Bomber Mafia that just got launched about the World War II bombers that were constantly trying to figure out how to get to Japan. That's completely out there from what most people know about Malcolm Gladwell, but he has this obsessive interest in history or his podcast, uh, Revisionist History, where it's looking at things as they actually are, not how we end up perceiving them through these different filters. It doesn't change anything, but it forces you to look at things slightly different and then make decisions utilizing that new knowledge. And you can't get that on your own. You learn that by reading and learning from others. Absolutely. And I think that's it's critical for People who want to make an impact in the world, we've got to look at things from different angles, ask to see it from other people's vision. Absolutely. I think that's the biggest problem for most people when when they're trying to build new products is they they only see it through their own eyes. And yeah. it's a very limited landscape. Yeah. Glenn, thank you so much for the time today. Really, uh, it's it's awesome to to get some some time on your calendar and get you to share your experience and, and your your vision. Keep up the great work. We're all very happy for your success, really. And thanks thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you both. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, love chatting with y'all. Awesome. We also want to thank you, our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.